You're listening to Sports Radio Detroit. Belong here. Understand that. You belong here. That's the biggest thing we have to understand here is that we belong here. And we take off from there. Pucking around. around. Welcome into Pucking Around here on Sports Radio Detroit. I'm Jason Pickham, and I'm here today with franchise Steve Height. We're here to discuss the last two weeks of the NHL before we get started. Steve, how's your two weeks been? How's the setting onset of winter treating you? It's going okay. It's starting to get into that time of the year where things are getting brisker outside. It's getting more hockey weather, so it's kind of nice. You get that smell in the air that like every now and again you'll go outside, whether it's to go to your car or to go into work or whatever, and there's that smell that makes you... And maybe maybe it's just me, but it makes me feel like I'm 13 again, like I'm looking for a street game somewhere. Like, where could I drop in? It's like that cold, fresh air. You just walk out and you're just like, ah, just, I don't know, man. Living in the in the northern U.S. during this time of the year is one of my favorite things. You get the fall transition into the winter, like we had some snow the other day, finally. And I don't know, man. It just, it always makes me even more into hockey and more into the winter season. And I do want to say there's another weird thing that has hilariously happened like four times for me where I'll be at an event in shorts or somewhere in shorts and and I'll see another guy in shorts and I'm like, hockey player? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know my own people. We're always wearing either a hoodie when it's 20 or shorts because we just, it's our natural or element. Both. <laughs> or both. Or both. Exactly. I was wearing both. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's start with the big, uh, you know, I, I, I want to do a rundown and then we'll jump into the biggest story of the day. Uh, obviously the first rundown will, or the first topic on our rundown is going to be the Senator's Uber video. I mean, we'd be foolish to ignore it. Plus there's so much to jump in on on it. Uh, our second topic of the day will be the Evgeny Malkin, uh, quote unquote blindside hit, uh, with quote unquote intent to injure, uh, our third topic will be talking about the Winter Classic jerseys that have been announced, uh, which I found out today we will be on the opposite sides of, which I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, and then we're going to jump on an article written by Greg Wyshynski questioning whether or not Martin Brodeur was overrated as he will be inducted into the hall. Uh, Darren Sprong is officially on the trade, bro- trade, bro- trade block, and I'm curious as to what kind of interest he could get. Uh, and then last... But not least, the Nylander situation and a check-in on your Leafs fandom. But let's start with the biggest elephant in the room, which is the Ottawa Senators Uber video. Uh, now, obviously, we we had this was a week ago. We some time has had some time has happened for this story to somewhat resolve itself. But I still want to offer opinions on it because, for me, I've watched this video probably seven to ten times already because. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was genuinely really fucking funny. Like, th- there's, there's the thing that frustrates me coming out of this that the, 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 the reaction to it was, oh, we need to apologize and we need to make our assistant coach look great. But there is nothing that those five to seven, uh, six well educated hockey players who play hockey for a profession said that I think that they should have to apologize for. I mean, yeah, you do an impression of your assistant coach. It's a little bit mean. But 
if if what Matthew Shane said is true, where it's like if nothing changes over three weeks and he could still you know come in and be like told oh fucking right you nailed it like that's that's just a that's just a plain bad move by the coaching staff like i'm sorry that they were filmed it's unfortunate they were filmed without their consent but that's illegally it's it's debatably illegal yeah i'm I'm not gonna argue that because there's a lot of vague terms of service that's actually illegal oh i actually didn't know that yeah you cannot you cannot unwill unwillingly videotape somebody without their consent in an uber right that is against their terms of service okay so it wasn't smart you know but the the rumor is that they didn't tip there's also I've heard stories that the guy may have been intoxicated. I don't I don't know much about that. That's just a, a a sentence I heard. But you know, moving past the legalities of it, or you know, the whole being filmed without consent, there's nothing they said that was really wrong to me. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, if anybody's ever played any kind of sport or in, uh, done any kind of in an organized fashion. There's never a point where you're going to a thousand percent agree with somebody that's directing you or above you or coaching you. There's, there's always going to be differences in philosophy and things of that nature. And that's natural for any sport, any activity in the world that requires coaching. So to hear players just be honest is kind of refreshing. One, because the PC culture of hockey is to be professional, courteous, never throw anybody under the bus, generally speaking, and to always just be polite. And it's, you know, when you get down to the nitty gritty and the realness of it is that's unrealistic because I mean, I grew up playing sports. There's a lot of times where that, that those conversations happen, even when you're doing well. I mean, the mocking the coach thing, it just could be an inside joke with the players, you know, like almost when you have a teacher that has some nuances that you hate and you make fun of at lunchtime with your buddies, like it's the same principle. I don't think anything they did was terrible. And I think if anything, they're trying to vent and and maybe bond as a team to get through a really difficult situation over there in Ottawa, which is being an Ottawa senator. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's to me the part of it that I found like I, I that's to me the excuse as to why they shouldn't have to apologize because if they were saying those things and you were sitting there, you know, on a Washington coming off a cup win or on a Pittsburgh, you know, doing pretty good other than the little losing streak they were on, but like you know, other than if they were saying those things on a top tier team that's a playoff contender. Yeah, I mean you're a fucking prick. Like your you, your team's doing good. You're being a douchebag, but your th- this team sucks, and it's not their fault. Like it's legitimately not their fault. They're all trying as best as they can with what limited talent they have. I mean they're not just not good players. They're not. It's not a well constructed roster. It's not even. I shouldn't even say well constructed. It's not even a fucking constructed roster. It is just blind luck that they happen to have enough players to play the game. And the fact that Matthew Shane is able to say like I I haven't even paid attention in three weeks. And they, I do the same thing. So it tells me as, you know, again, someone who's played the sport. So they're not even trying to fix with what they have. Like, again, we, you know, we, we reference the Red Wings a lot. We have a sister show about them. At least they're trying with what a mm-hmm. limited shitty roster. This reads to me like Ottawa's just is like, well, I mean, we're, we're the senators, I guess. They've it, already it, internally given up. Yeah, it feels that way, right? They're just going through the motions. They're playing to play. They don't care the outcome. And, and that's. That's the unfortunate thing about it. If anything, I'd had to nitpick is that professional aspect of if you're doing something that supposedly is a dream and you get to do it every day and you're living your best life doing that dream and you're not at least making somewhat of a considerable effort to try to do something and try to win, I think you're doing one a disservice to the organization, but more importantly, you're doing a disservice to every fan 
that comes to see you and buys your jerseys and buys your memorabilia and spends their time out of their day to watch you play. Yeah. And, and, and another element of this too, the reason that I'm, I was really frustrated that they had, that they automatically issued an apology and that we were going to work with our coach and all that stuff is how often, how many times since this show's inception have we had a chance for a player to offer a very, offer a very genuine, sincere opinion on a situation and they never fucking do. They never do. And then now we get an actual like insight, like they're people for once. They're actually people. People that I can laugh with and I can agree with, and they at the end of the day they still go back and they, 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 they he's still their coach. They still have to respect him in some way, shape, or form, even if they talk shit behind his back. And immediately they walk it back. That's what's frustrating to me is like this is a sport that is suffering from lack of personalities and the first glimmer, again, albeit illegally obtained, of hope that you have, you immediately walk back. I think that's just PR. That's going to happen. If that happened in any other sport, the same thing would happen. You know where it doesn't happen? The NBA. Because the NBA doesn't give a shit. And that's why they're getting popularity. I think fans love this shit. That's my point. Yeah, that's the problem, though. People just like drama and they like immaturity because it's funny. They can laugh at it because a majority of the world is immature and ignorant so that they find that amusing. Like, I don't find most of the stuff that happens in the NBA slightly amusing. Mm -hmm. I think it's just non-professional. But then again... I enjoy hockey and then you see this element and it's like a breath of fresh air because it's so far the other extreme. But I think in general, the whole thing was like when I saw the video, my first reaction was like, oh, I've been there. I felt that before. Yeah, that's that's just a human reaction to going through a negative time. And then it gets blown out of proportion because everybody's like, oh, you know, they're not being professional athletes. Well, what happens when you go home after your job that you got shit on all day and you have to, you know, work with a bunch of incompetent idiots? How do you feel? You have the same reaction. So I think it's just human and that's nice. But again, PR is a thing. They're going to walk it back. They're going to release the statement that they're going to, that the quote unquote typical hockey reaction, we're going to handle it internally as a team. Basically, F you, we're not getting any more out of it. Sorry. Yeah. And that's, that's my problem is like, I don't, I don't need you to go full NBA with this. I don't need this to be like, you know, let's, let's get real interviews with every player. I don't need, I don't need like a camera in the team house. Like, no, I don't want that. But in the same token, it's like for me, just as a fan of, you know, as a tertiary fan of the sport, as somebody who's not diving into the numbers every single second of every single day, it's fun to see these people be people that are just like me. Like, and especially because if I was a 20 year old millionaire, I'd be a cocky prick too. Like, if I was a 20-year-old millionaire, a 24-year-old millionaire who is probably one of the, let's say, what, two, 300 best players or best at that thing in the world, I'm going to be a co- I'm gonna be cockier than any of them were. So the fact that that's all we got is a miracle, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. I, I thought it was – I was screaming with laughter. I've watched it edited. I've watched it unedited. It's funny both ways. Bleeps are funny to hear from NHL players because you don't hear them a lot. It's funny to hear an NHL player say fuck. Like, it's just fun to me, and I, 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 I know that this is not going to be uh, a gateway into the world of players, but a little part of me hopes that, like, s- that this shows that you can do this without a lot of – consequences not not on that level but at least you can be a little bit more honest with us does that make sense okay well let's let's talk about something else that got overblown because this is this is the darker side of the news in the in the sense that 
we've covered, I think, every week of the season, uh, some kind of headshot. Um, but not yet to this point have we covered a headshot that, and I, we talked about this pre-show that we're both on the same page on where it's like, it seems like the reaction was like, we're so, we're so desperate to fix the problem of headhunting in the NHL that we're now kind of headhunting the headhunters, even if they're not headhunting. I know that was a lot of headhunting, but you know, just give me your take on the Evgeny Malkin hit on TJ Oshie the other night and, you know, what your reaction was after seeing the hit and did you feel it was an overreaction? What, you, you know, go on. Okay. We'll start with Evgeny Malkin was skating into the zone. He made a pass. TJ Oshie kind of just lined up to make a hit. Malkin just stuck out. He's like, it looked like he was just trying to observe the hit from coming from TJ Oshie because TJ Oshie's kind of a big dude. Like, that's, that's a hefty human. Like, it's just, that's two big dudes running into each other and he got a match penalty game misconduct and i think the penalty in itself was more reputation because if we're being honest malkin has a reputation for kind of being a little bit dirty he, he he flirts with that line continually and i think the reaction of the penalty and kicking him out in that situation i'm okay with because they're, they're trying to send a message that's consistent i'm okay with that that part i'm consistently okay with what i don't understand is as soon as this happened the social media Basically calling Malkin a headhunter, you know, you have people coming out like Daniel Carcillo saying, you know, he's running around kind of being dumb. Like, like, let's be honest. If you watch the play and if you're looking at it like I looked at it, you're like, he stuck out his arm because he felt like he was going to. Now, if he chicken winged him with his elbow straight out, don't deal. Give him a few games. I get it because he, he put himself in a bad position. But in that in this situation where the hit was, it happened so fast that like your natural instinct as a hockey player, when somebody comes near you, you're going to crunch up because, you know, you're going to absorb the hit. That's just that's just a natural habit. So, I mean, maybe that match penalty was extreme, but if they're being consistent by calling the match penalty, I can live with that because he didn't get any more games. There's no hearing. Nothing else happened. It's done. And that's that's kind of where I'm at with it in the sense of. The match penalty, I'm okay with. I don't, I don't like it. I mean, ideally, I'd like them to be able to discern quicker. I'd like them to be able to discern intent quicker. But I think they kind of need, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt oh, you. Just, it kind of reminded me of like how in the NCAA, they have replay for targeting. They need to have replay for hits to the head. Cause then you can review the hit to the head and be like, okay, you can determine what the intent was and then you can give the penalty for it. Take the extra minute or two and just review it really quick. I'm okay with that. Well, and especially in a league that we have video replay on fucking everything else, at least why not do it on something that actually hurts people? But more importantly, like, I'm okay with the penalty. That's fine. Again, I wish they could discern it quicker, but they didn't, so whatever. What frustrates me is the is the surrounding, like, is exactly what you were saying. First and foremost, if you listen, you know, for any listeners out there, go watch the calling of the game. It was on NBC because it was Pittsburgh, Washington, so it's always on NBC. And... Everyone in that game was like, oh, my God, he was trying to fucking kill him. Like, no, he wasn't like he he the chi- the the use of the phrase chicken wing is so key on your part because he moves his arm maybe three to four inches off his body at like a 23 degree angle. So his elbow is still pointing at the ice. There's if you're intending to injure, your elbow is not pointing at the ice. Newsflash to anybody who doesn't understand how hockey works. If somebody's coming at your elbow and all you have to do is lift it six inches and you wreck that person and you choose not to do it, you are 100% not intending to injure them. You are bracing for the hit and you're a tremendous human being. Evgeny Malkin is not small. TJ Oshie is stout, but Evgeny Malkin is tremendous. 
So the fact that that TJ Oshie just happened to run directly into his arm is on TJ Oshie, not Evgeny Malkin. But what's more important to me is that like you have Daniel Carcillo, Daniel Carcillo, who made a fucking living breaking people's jaws, is now coming out trying to be the anti Tom Wilson. Like dog, it's too late. Like I don't care if you're trying to like find your redemption via Twitter. Do it on things that are actually intent because you you of all people know how this works because you played fucking NHL hockey and you're acting like. Like, like Evgeny Malkin was out there scouting for TJ Yoshi to break him in half. Like, what? What are you even talking about? I don't get that. Yeah, that's part of it, too, is, like, if you really look at the hit, most of these headhunting hits, they're, you know, hits from behind. But the aggressor in the situation was the hitter from behind on Malkin. Malkin did not stop his progress. He was still moving forward when the hit happened. So just, like, and then also, I think I think we need to do a better job of establishing like what's the word I want to use here like the conditions for the hitter making the hit because he put himself in a bad GG Yoshi put himself in a really bad position running at a guy that's one bigger than him and two had the momentum going into the offensive zone that's just dumb and like yeah if you lower yourself to make a hit on a guy that's taller than you you're probably gonna hit your face just just just, that's anatomy (laughs) <laughs> like just not to be shit. dumb that's just basic things you know I, I just think the whole I like that they want to take it serious but the people who aren't taking it serious are the ones who need to be the NHL itself is not taking this as serious as they do but when they do they choose to make a really bad example out of the really wrong times and, and that's my sentiment of a lot of the, the current NHL fan is they don't take a body of work of somebody like you know, TJ Oshie, who's a very physical player, he's he's a power forward. He's a physical force out there. Malkin, he's a pretty physical force when he wants to be. A lot of the times it costs his team, he takes really bad penalties in the process. But both of those guys don't have reputations for being dirty players-ish. Malkin may be leaning more on the line, but I think a lot of these fans need to just kind of relax, take the emotion out of it, and if they knew hockey better, because most, most everybody that I talked to that plays is like, yeah, I didn't see a problem with that. Like, the penalty probably was a little bit extreme, but they're trying to be consistent. I'm just like, exactly. You hate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's a great way, and I'll, I'll wrap the topic on this in, unless you want to add to it. But here's a great way to, to dictate intent in a hit. Go ahead and draw a solid line behind where the skater is skating. And then draw a dotted line where their direction is, like where their vision is aimed. And you can do that with all the camera angles we have today. Do that with any one of these hits. You want to go do the Tom Wilson hit in the preseason? His line is directly to break that guy. He's not paying attention to the play. He's not paying Halfway attention to the Halfway across the rink. He's, 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 he commits to that for a long way. And you could draw direct lines to do this all the way. He follows a dotted line directly to that hit. You want to do the dotted line, solid line trick with Oshie and Malkin? Oshie's going, or Malkin's going straight and making a pass. Oshie's going straight for Malkin. That it's, it's literally that simple in my opinion. Like it's, it's just that basic. And the fact that that, was treated as if it was like we literally watched a crucifixion on ice is mind-boggling to me. And I really hope that we – I hope that what can come of this is a better grasp of what is and isn't intent to hit. That's all I can hope for because it doesn't seem like much else changes in this league. Uh, let's jump into uh, what you said we're going to disagree on and I think it's going to be fun. Uh, the Blackhawks and the Bruins unveiled their uniforms for the 2019 Winter Classic, and I gotta say, I feel like this is a shit show. Like, I thought this is dull. This is boring. There's a complete lack of color and excitement on these uniforms. 
one of the fun parts about the way uniforms have evolved and changed to me is that we get interesting new designs, interesting ways to play with sleeves and where stripes can go. And more importantly, most importantly, in my excuse me, in my opinion, uh, bright and beautiful colors. You know, I, I, I've never been the guy to want to go back. Like, I, I like some traditional looking uniforms. I'm a big fan of the, you know, I'm a big fan of the Canadians standard look. I like that. It's very simple. But for me, when you have the Chicago Blackhawks who have some of the most fun colors to play with, they have, you know, hints of green and yellow in their logo that you can play with and do things with. And instead we get what basically amounts to a prison uniform of all black with white stripes. And then the Bruins switching from their traditional, like, dark bordering on black brown to like that almond brown or not almond more like a like an ebony brown like not quite as dark as they normally are and then like a softer yellow with just a b like not even the excite like even their normal logo which i'm not a fan of has a little more pizzazz than this and i don't know if it's i don't know for me this does nothing for me but you said you had the opposite opinion so i'm curious where you stand well, I, I think part of your opinion is fundamentally just off because you're expecting an original six team to do something drastically different. One, they're not going to. Two, how many times have both of these te- This has got to be like the seventh winter classic game for Chicago and yeah. then maybe the fourth or fifth for Boston. At some point, redundancy. That That being said, that's just kind of what I thought of it. I really like the Bruins jerseys because I've always just liked the color palette of like the brown and and the lighter yellow I, I think maybe they could have done more with the like the b but respectively as a design person like i i get where they're going with it and the stripes and they're basically taking an homage to an older jersey which i kind of like the the chicago one i just i like the striping like it's just different because like, a lot of times they either stick with one striping pattern the one solid line or the other and this one they mix like two of them together and and you're right, maybe they could have mixed in red and greens and stuff, or the greens and the yellows, but that's not their fundamental actual colors. Black is one of their primary colors of their jersey, so I kind of get it. No, I'm okay know, like, with that, but get red in there. Yeah, maybe they could have done red and, and like on the smaller stripes and maybe would have added just a little bit to it, but then you're getting too similar to the other Winter Classic jersey they had against that, Pittsburgh. Hey, you know what? Was, that's fair, too. Just do the word Blackhawks and Chicago in red. Like, do the logo feel- outline in just red. Yeah. And then change even, nothing else. I'd be totally even if, on board. Even if they did like a like a script logo on the front, like Blackhawks, instead of just the the symbol logo that they generally use for the Winter Classic. But I get it. It's a really strong, powerful logo. I mean, it's a Native American thing. So, I mean, I, like I said, I don't have a problem with the jerseys. These are the jerseys when I looked at them, I was like, oh, like those are nice. I would probably buy the Boston one. I think that's nice. See, I didn't have that reaction. And by the way, to answer your question, how many times the original six teams done weird jerseys? I mean, the Blackhawks have been known to do a couple of weird jerseys. They have that one uh, uh, that was an away one where it was white with a solid black shoulder and then alternating black and red stripes on the side, which is that was nice to some extent weird and cool. And it had huge numbers. And speaking of huge numbers, the Red Wing Stadium Classic against Colorado is a completely bonkers jersey with a weird D they've never used before. And I love that jersey, you know. Make like and and then again like I I go to reference the Red Wings because it's the ones that come to my mind. But like the Red Wings, uh, Winter Classic against Serrano, the white one with the with the silver stripe, like that's nothing they've ever worn. It's completely different than anything they've ever worn, and that's part of what bothers me about this is that that these teams apparently got together and were like, we're going back to 1934, like when no one gave a shit. 
Well, also, the teams don't generally have a say in the design of it. That is Adidas that is making the jerseys. Okay. So the Adidas creative directors are kind of like, they. Pr- this is probably more than likely the design choice, right? They probably give them three samples and like, these are the three samples you need to choose from. And then the team is probably like, I guess it's this one. <laughs> That's probably what happens. Probably. And I, I wish the team would pick something like, because the only red I can see on the Blackhawks is in the inside of the back of the collar on the horse collar area. There's like the red years for the years they won the cup. You you know what would actually make this balance out and look good because we haven't I haven't seen the full actual uniform because normally when you do that you get the gloves the pants the socks the helmets right mm-hmm. if they did the helmets and the pants in red that would look really good done deal I'd be sold a hundred percent it's that simple because then you're adding color because right now I can see what you're saying it's black and white but if maybe they added some color in there with like the accessories of the equipment that would be cool especially because you're playing in Notre you know in Notre Dame Stadium like. That the, the the that's why I suggested the green, not because they use green as a primary color of any kind, but because you know green is in their main logo and they're playing in Notre Dame. Like there's an element of that, and like Boston's an Irish-based city kind of thing. Yeah, they do have an Irish jersey. I mean, they have a green Blackhawks jersey. Just do that. I'd have been on. I'd been on board for that too. Or, or they could have paid an homage to you know Notre Dame and like with the black, they could have done like green and gold stripes. Done that. That could have been cool. Done 100%. Then you're using your colors and you're paying tribute to the stadium you're playing in. You're doing all the things you want to do. And I don't know how this is possible that an actual graphic designer and a complete pleb can figure this out. And a billion, multi-billion dollar company in Adidas is just like, yeah, black and white, fuck it. Like, that's what frustrates me. Yeah, I I mean, just, just in general with the jersey choices in the Winter Classic, I feel like that's one of the aspects for me personally that's just been really redundant now. I just like... A lot of these jerseys, they're they're just making them like throwback ish. It's like they're always like, we have to make it look like an old jersey because it's old time hockey. It's just like, no, like some of the best ones have been the the newer styles, like all the jerseys that you you like alleviated to. I I thought were really good, like really good iterations of them. But at the same token, like that's the problem with the NHL in a nutshell is they <laughs> good old classic original six hockey and they got they just here's a circle they're just slamming it into it constantly <laughs> absolutely true speaking of a circle that you can't slam it in uh martin Brodeur is going into the hall of fame <laughs> uh and you know greg wyshynski known new jersey devils fan uh made a point to write an article questioning whether or not martin Brodeur was overrated obviously at the end of it he implies that he was not which I mostly agree with because just due to the volume of shutouts in, in the era he played because he he got a lot of his shutouts in the era in which it was a, a shutdown league, but he also put up a bunch of shutouts when it wasn't. You know, when the league started to score a lot more in the mid-2000s and started to put up regular numbers, you know, he still was putting up ridiculous numbers, still carrying teams to the cup. But, you know, a point can be made that, you know, when you have Scott Stevens and uh, Scott Niedermeyer – you know, both in front of you at the same time. I mean, it's kind of really hard to score on you. And, you know, when you compare, when, again, this article goes to point out, like when you compare him to the just players playing in his era, guys like Hoshnik Wah and Belfour, and even to some extent, you know, uh, I won't even say it, but anyways. You know, but, I know uh, what you were going to say. What was I going to say? Chris Osgood. No, I was going to say Curtis Joseph. 
uh, just in terms of players that have been hung out to dry their entire career, but despite having a, an oodles of talent, Osgood was 100% just a good goalie in the right situation. Uh, Osgood is more along the lines of Brodeur, in my opinion. He's like a less skilled Brodeur. Like, he had the right guys in front of him at the right time. Brodeur just, I think, had that level of talent. I mean, there's a lot to this. I'm kind of rambling. I'm curious to what your stance was on this article and where you feel about Brodeur. I mean, this is hard for me because I'm trying not to be biased, but... I grew up in that era of like that was the guy that I worshipped. Him and Patrick Waugh. They came out of the same area, the same time frame. That's the era of the goalie. I mean, the goalies in those er- in that era, the the, the the few that you named, it just uh, unanimously like if you played goalie, you idolized. It just all kind of different styles. If you were a butterfly goalie, probably Patrick Waugh. Patrick Waugh, and then you know Martin Brodeur, just based on the fact that he was so consistently good throughout his whole entire career, except for that little stint in St. Louis. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, count. yeah, like, I just think that, you know, the argument that like, who is in front of you determines how good you are and, and your worth. I think it, there's some merit there, but every team that's won a Stanley Cup and been good has probably had a Norris defenseman in front of them, generally speaking. I mean, what would the Red Wings be without Nick Lindstrom during those years? Like uh, you know nothing. What I, mean? I firmly believe exactly. nothing. Exactly. So he perpetuated that team into a higher echelon of just better defense, and the Red Wings could have afforded to have a less than amazing goaltender behind them because they had the greatest front six you could imagine. Like the one year in two thousand two, I think five out of six of them what were future gold medal, hall, gold medal, and hall of famers. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. If you don't win the Stanley Cup, that's got to be like, you know, like if you can't do that with that in front of you, what are you doing? I mean, just looking at Martin Berger's stats too, his goals against average as a career was a 2.24. Like in the middle years there, like the highest it got was like 245 or 250. Like two, the last two years, it was a little bit higher because he's getting a little bit older. But I mean, gosh, like in the early 90s, man, like his goals against average was like insane. At one point he had like a one eight eight and that was the one year he won like the Vezna. Like that's insane. Yeah, there's no question to me that he's a Hall of Fame goalie. But if you're asking me, like I think the 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 the, the question for me coming from this article was where does he rank in that era of just those three? Because I don't want to jump into, you know, throwing Belfort and Cujo into it because that starts getting into the philosophy of like, you know, good goalies on shit teams. Cujo was never really on a good team. So that's not his sure. fault. And same with Belfour. I mean, Belfour has the cup in Dallas or whatever, but it's not the same. But those three in specific, you know, my rating simply goes Hashik Wabroder. And not based on numbers, not based on not based on their output, but based on what I think in an ideal situation in their prime, I would pick. Like that to me is the way I do these evaluations. When somebody's like, Oh, how do you rank all greatest of all time in anything? For me, it's what would they do in their prime in an ideal situation? Who would I pick? And for me, Hashik's number one. See, Wah was never number one for me. He's too cocky. It's not even close. Dominic Hashik is hot. But that's the Red Wings in me. I'm going to be honest. A lot of that's the Red Wings in me. I hated that guy. I fucking hated him. I mean, I didn't have a chance to have any of these goalies on any of the team that I preferred. (laughs) You know, like, I don't have that. I don't have the same thing. So it's just like, I just appreciate what Patrick Wah did. Like, yeah, yeah, he's a cocky son of a bitch, but like, he won. Yeah. And like, the way he won. And how dominant he was in these, especially against Detroit some of those years, man. Like, it it was astounding to me how he played. 
And I got to see some of it being over here. You finally get to see it in person. And then, you know, towards the end of his career, he kind of, you know, there's that infamous 7 and nothing Game 7 against <laughs> Statue him. Statue of Liberty goal. Which, yeah. But, like, man, I think for me, Patrick Watt's probably going to be number one. It'd be hard to be number two because I think Hashik has a legitimacy. He's that guy that, like, he revolutionized goaltending in a certain way. And and that's the one thing for me. And he made it exciting. And that's where I think a lot of people get that, like, the excitement factor. But for me, fundamentally, as as somebody who played goaltender, it's hard to get away from Patrick Waugh and Martin Brodeur. Fundamentally. What I think is fascinating about those three is that they're literally three ends of the spectrum. Like, Brodeur is literally fundamentals first, stay in your zone. And, yeah, he played the puck a little bit, but he was, like, super fundamental stand-up. And then Hashik was like, fuck it, save it with your ankle, I don't care. Throw anything you can out there, do it, tackle a guy on a breakaway if you have to. <laughs> As he did several times in his career. Uh, Shout-outs to, uh, Mar- was it? Uh, Marion Gabrick. Marion Gabrick, yeah. Shouts to Marion Gabrick. And then in the middle you have Brodeur, who was kind of both of those things. Or uh, uh, Wah, who was kind of both of those things. The thing that precludes me from putting Wah up there is only, it's, it's two things. It's first and foremost, dirtiness, and not in terms of dirtiness I can respect. Like, like dirtiness I can respect is like, again, I only go to Red Wings because it's just th- things I can think of from that time. The Wings used to be the king of the, we're going to slash you and we're not going to get a slashing. That's dirtiness I can respect. Wah was, you know, ball hunting. You know, like, he was testicle hunting. He was punching people. He was tackling people. You know, this is a guy who... You don't remember Hashik and Buffalo, do you? I do, but it's it. it he was never on that extreme did, of every why. goalie. Every yeah, he was every goalie in that situation did the same stuff and that during during that time period. Ed Belford did it. Hashik did it. Broder did it. If you were in the crease in the nineties, you were gonna stick. Well, maybe that's just, that was maybe that's my that bias was showing. goaltending. Maybe that's my bias showing. I'm willing to admit it. Uh, but lastly, the thing that to me really separates him is the other two, both Broder and Hashik, don't really have. Let alone one famous horrible blow up game, but two. Like Wah has two huge black marks on his career that will always stick out to me. And you know they're both Red Wings, which is even funnier. You know the seven another game, which you pointed out already. But more importantly, the eleven to one drubbing or thirteen to one drubbing in Montreal that led to the trade. Like that didn't happen with Hashik or Brodeur. Even if they had bad games, they weren't like fuck it, trade me. Like that to me was like the the one notch down where I would be like. Who would I want in that situation? It's got to be Hashik because Hashik's going to do weird shit, and we're probably going to—he's probably going to hurt somebody because he's going to tackle him on a breakaway, but he's going to save it with his tongue if he has to. I don't care, but that's—that's that's me. That's just my defense. I don't—I don't think it has to be that way for anybody. I totally get why you, the way you defend Wa because he's unarguably amazing. He's unarguably the best goalie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not going to say that. I—I I won't. I won't jump on that. Uh, I think. I mean, because, like, I separate what happens on the ice and personality things. Like, it's like, it, it's almost like if Wayne Gretzky was the giant, the biggest douchebag in the world. But it's like, that's Wayne fucking Gretzky. You know, it's like, it's like people in the fantasy draft that don't take Sidney Crosby because they don't like him. Mm. It's like, don't you want free points? Do you not want to win your league? You take Sidney Crosby with the first pick because it's consistent, he is the best. Yeah, but if the exchange is Connor McDavid or Nikita Kucherov in terms of fantasy production, which is what Hashik and Brodeur are to the Crosby, yeah, I'm okay with that. That's just me, though. I, I think due to our time, by the way, I think we can just go ahead and skip right over the Sprung story because that's Sprung's fine. whatever. There's 
I, I think there's just not really much there yet anymore. No. Like I was kind of looking at it and just like, eh. But I do want to, yeah. I do want to jump into this Nylander thing because there is a lot to it. And, and you know a lot about it. And that's really important because I'm kind of in the dark on the Nylander thing because I only get, I'm not keyed it. I don't follow the Maple Leafs. I don't follow Maple Leafs reporters. I'm assuming you do. I, I don't have any like real into this world, but I am fascinated to see what a guy who consistently puts up production, 61 points each of the last two seasons, uh, you know, According to you in the pre-show, you said he turned down a seven-year, $40 million offer from the Maple Leafs. Six-year. Six-year, $40 million. So that's coming up on $7 million a year, which they have and they can give him, and that's a good offer. Um, you know, Just be uneducated before I give it to you to kind of fill in the backfill in the information. Just on the ignorant side, that seems like he should have probably taken that deal. But that's just right now. But I want to hear your side of it. Yeah, I think there's a few factors in this. One... His father, notorious for holding out numerous times in his career, has had a lot of weight, supposedly what I read in this article on Sportsnet, about like him basically deterring negotiations for his son. So, you know, former NHLer, he knows the business, he knows the system. I get it. You're trying to do what's best for your son. But here's the problem with all of this. Normal negotiations when you're in this situation, if you're the free agent, you have the upper hand. But here's the problem. He's... he's He's a group two restricted free agent, which basically means Toronto has his rights for almost eight years. It doesn't matter. Like even, even if we, if he signs, you know, that X deal or whatever, he's still a restricted agent within a certain amount of years of the deal. That's just how it works with the NHL because he got drafted. He's still in his entry level deal. Okay. They just have his rights. And the other fact is what's playing against him is if he doesn't sign by, what was it? December 1st. December. Yeah, December 1st, under the new rules of the collective bargaining agreement, it's section 11.4 that if he does not sign by December 1st, he cannot play this year because they made a rule that to keep people from holding out to certain extents, you can't sign after a certain amount of time. And there's only been 20 players since this new deal came incepted that have signed before December 1st and played. Anthony Siu was one of them last year, or the year before. Yeah, last year. Uh, Johnny Grugeau two years ago. Chuba. There's a bunch of Nikita Kucherov. The lo- the latest that it's ever happened with was Kyle Turris in Arizona, and it was in 2011. He had a two-year deal, and it was literally Thanksgiving Day he signed. Okay. So I, I think there's a lot working <clears throat> against him in this situation where they want to have leverage to get a deal. And I think Kyle Dumbas has done a really good job of trying to get the end result as which one was to sign him. He wants to put him in this situation. He he likes Nylander. He thinks he adds to the team. They want him. But I think how well the team is doing with all these other people, like Sammy Kappen has definitely filled in greatly on the, you know, even though Matthews has been hurt for the last few weeks, he's coming back. They're going to have that infusion back in the lineup. And they're still like 12 and 5 and leading the division in the Eastern Conference. <laughs> like... They're not missing him, and I think that's another thing that does not pay well for Nylander. And and this is going to be one of those things that I think he's going to look back on, and I th- he's got to realize he's making a really big mistake right now. Because, yeah, I, I know that it's it's me-first mentality for a lot of these kids coming into the league. They want to get their money. And, yeah, you can go in the open market and maybe get 3 or $4 million, but are you going to win a Stanley Cup maybe in the next five years in some of those teams? No, because you're probably going to go to some team like Arizona, who has the cap space, they're, they're nowhere near a playoff team. Maybe you get into a team like Carolina, who's an upstarter, but they're kind of close on the cap. I don't know if they would lean on that. Like, 
And not to mention, for those things to happen, you're going to have to be traded. Which means Toronto still has the upper hand because they have your rights. They could sit there and say no to everything until they get the 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 porridge is just right deal. So he's kind of screwing himself. Let's let's talk about one of those deals because this is pointed out in, our, in an article on Bleacher Report. Uh, James Myrtle of the Atlant- of the Athletic has pointed out that Kyle Dubas has met with several teams. Uh, one of the teams that identified is the Minnesota Wild, and he, Dubas has had a face-to-face meeting with Wild general manager Paul Fenton. Uh, the reason the Wild is pointed out as the team that is referenced in this as trade bait is because a deal would completely make sense uh, since the Wild could use a lot more offensive creativity and scoring up front while the Wild actually have depth on defense and could part with a blue liner. And uh, one of the names mentioned in the article is Jared Spurgeon, who had 38 points in 2016-17. 37 points in 17, 18, and had 18 points through his first 14 games, or eight points through his first 14 games of this year, uh, referenced directly in the article as the time of the article. Uh, that's, that to me makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is a team that is lacking in defense. I don't know if that's a player that Minnesota would technically want to skirt on, though, because he's, he's kind of been a staple in their top four. I don't think you just want to give up one piece in your top four to maybe add a little bit more offensive depth, if that makes sense. I wouldn't sacrifice a top four for maybe a top six because I don't think Nylander is that difference maker on a team. I think he fits a team mold well and helps excel certain teammates, but I don't think he's the missing piece in Minnesota to make them better because if the missing pieces, they need a center. They need a really good center because they don't have one. They don't have the generational or the, even the step down, the, the Generation B talent at center. You look at that lineup, and I don't see it anywhere. I mean, they thought that was maybe Michael Granlin, but I don't see that at all. No, but coming from the Toronto side, that is a trade that makes 100% sense if you're a Maple Leaf fan. Like, you're able to get rid of a guy that's causing you a ton of trouble, and it, it doesn't seem to be... Uh, your your team doesn't seem to be uh, lacking from having him on there, or from not having him on there, and you can get a defenseman that can actually push you to, like not just legitimate contender, but like the contender, in my opinion, like Spurgeon's not, Spurgeon's not a make or break, but in that system with the way the Leafs are built and the thing that they're lacking and has always been what they, I should say always been since they've been relevant over the last three seasons has been lacking is like, yeah, you have all the firepower in the world. You know, we've said it on this show before you'll, I guess we'll win every game six to five, but you know, when you can go out there and get a guy who can play top line minutes like Spurgeon and, and start to eat up some of those uh, offensive opportunities that your team gives up, that's not a bad thing to have, in my opinion. That's that to me is kind of universally a great thing, and I actually think that that might be the move I'd be willing to make if you have that kind of offensive prowess. The only problem I have with the Spurgeon deal is he makes almost he makes over five mil. You offered and you offered Nylander seven, but the problem is like. He, like the core of the defense in Toronto, they have a certain amount of money locked up already. And then you're just making it higher with that deal. Like, you're just kind of like, you know, it's like, here, where am I going to throw more money? Well, I mean, you, like, again, just, using, just because well, I'm, I'm getting rid of a guy that doesn't want to sign because he thinks he can't afford to be here. So why would I just go out and trade that guy? One who makes a way less money than the guy we're taking in. Because Nylander's on an entry level. Right. So technically his cap is like a mil and a half, and we're adding $5 million in cap. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think that could be doable. That means we'd have to be sending another person back with them. 
And if that's the case, I would think maybe Jake Gardner would be it. But I don't know if I'm ready to give up on that train yet. Well, no, but number one, you're using the, the hand balance thing you were doing. You, right now, all of your weight is on the offensive side. He Spurgeon tips that scale and kind of evens it out, makes you a more balanced team, in my opinion. So it's like Nylander doesn't bring anything to the table you don't already have. Like, that's the important part to me is like, again, the numbers, you're right. But like, number one, he wants more than six million as he turned it down. So he wants to make more than Spurgeon's already making. And then number two, he brings a skill set to your team that your team is not lacking in. You know, the Maple Leafs are not lacking in offensive prowess or guys who can put up 60 points. That's their entire top six. So if you can trade a guy who would be the seventh best forward on a team full of all-star caliber forwards to get a guy who would be, a you know, the second or third best defenseman on a team with maybe two great defense or one great defenseman and then like two good defensemen and then three nobodies, that to me makes a ton of sense, especially in these days when you need to manage your cap hit. And if you can get a guy, if you can get a defenseman who can eat 20 to 25 minutes or 25 minutes a game that's under five, five mil or less and still putting up almost 40 points a year. That's, that's a win. That's gotta be a win. I mean, I don't know that it's going to happen, but that's the move I would make if I was that GM. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I I think it does make, it would make the Leafs better, but I don't know how much better and how, how much it's worth it because Jared Spurgeon is one of those guys that he's been in the league for a while now. He's more known as an offensive defenseman, and I'm not sure that's necessarily what Toronto needs because their power play is obscene. They basically run four forwards anyways. So, All right, well, let's wrap this up by uh, talking about a man who got let go. Oh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll touch on your fandom a little bit because I want to see how the Maple Leafs are doing. You did reference it. But uh, in what I'm going to say is a surprise, uh, not because of their position in the standings, but because of you know, the clout he has and the way this league usually operates, you know, when, when you have a guy who, uh, pardon me for delaying here just a little bit. When you have a guy who has led to multiple championships with the team in the NHL, typically they are in the category of what we like to refer to as bulletproof. And Joel Quenville to me would have been in that Scotty Bowman bulletproof category. Like that's a guy who, you know, yeah, if you have hard times, you know, it sucks, but it's not his fault. And that's something I always find interesting about these firings. You know, it's, it's when we're doing good, it's like, oh man, we drafted a good team. We built a good roster. And when we're doing bad, it's like, oh, the coach sucks. Why is it not ever the player's fault or the management's fault? That I don't get. I think because it's easier to get rid of the coach. <laughs> you know, you can't get rid of half of your roster and half your management. That's, that's kind of hard. Like as, as per just like, a local spin on that, the Detroit Red Wings. Just look at like what's happening there. I mean, right now you have a coach that's, I, I think just not meant to mold what's happening there. And I think has heavily underperformed his expectations of what the fan base has thought he could have done. And then you look at a guy like Joe Quenville, who I, I think in tandem with Mike Babcock is probably one of the best coaches of the last 10, 15 years, arguably. Yeah. Like one of the most successful and, and Joe Quenville is always never brought up in that discussion. And I think it's a shame because I've gotten to, we've gotten to see like what he's done with some of the best players in the NHL. They got, they were, I would say, quote, a dynasty ish in, in that situation where 
they they drafted really well and then he molded that team to play a certain way and they were heavily successful for a good part of the last decade. What, three cups in five years? Three and like seven, I think it was technically. Was it at the one 10, point. 13, and 15? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's, yeah, th- three and five, that's good enough for me. That to, <laughs> that to me, okay, and it's only been three years since that. And yes, they've had a mighty downfall, but also like those teams during that time, if you really want to have fun, Go look at the way those rosters rosters were constructed. It's really a testament to how good of a coach he was, and that's really hard for me to admit being a Red Wings fan. Like this, this, this roster was never the best roster in the league. Even when they were winning cups, they were never the best complete roster, top to bottom. It was always Tampa, Washington, or Pittsburgh, or you know, if you want to throw in like San Jose or L.A. at times, you know, even some of those years, Detroit was exactly yeah, and yet and yet they always got it done, and it wasn't you know, Kane. Kane and Taves were never, and I say this with all respect to them being great, they were never the best players in the league. Kane was never the best player in the league. He was never unquestionably the best. And yet they always got it done. He was always talked that way because that team was handled well, both through management and coaching. And I don't think coaching is the problem right now. You don't have a fucking goalie and your team is all 37 years old. Like that's what happens. It's called the downfall. I'm living it. Like you you either have to start making moves or, or, accept your fate but getting rid of a guaranteed first ballot hall of fame coach is not the first solution i think it's almost the same situation that was starting to happen in detroit with mike babcock like things have ran its course and i think they just wanted to maybe see if a change would help them and and like i can respect that he had his time here do i think joe quinville is the problem no but i think there's there is a true sentiment to the fact that after a while does your voice get heard? Do people listen to you? Do they take you serious? You know, like after a while, I think like there is that trueness to that, that like that happened here in Detroit. People didn't want to listen to Mike Babcock. They they joked about him. Like, and I think the same thing was happening maybe there that like some people were just kind of sick of him. Things ran its course. They had their fun. Now it's just like, maybe we should just see a change and make it happen. And I mean, the guy filling in for him, Jeremy Collision, like, they lost their first game, four to three, against Carolina, a good Carolina team. But I think they also just lost to Philly four to nothing. Yeah, like, like I don't think the team is necessarily amazing. That's a borderline playoff team at its best. So I don't think any coach that's going to inherit that situation is bad. Like, say in Detroit, if they fire Blash Hill, and say you Bilesma know would get the Bilesma, get the promotion. Bilesma gets bumped, right? If he does, do I think he's going to uh, turn this team around and they make this miraculous run? No, because of the roster. Yeah, that's my <laughs> point. Like, that's that's exactly what I, 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 I will kind of wrap it on that and go to your checking on the Leafs and stuff. But, like, it's never the coach that can do the – I mean, people like to say, oh, you know, Biles turned around the Penguins in 08, 09 or whatever. But it was Crosby and Malkin coming into their prime. Like, it's it's – the coaches can do good things. Barry Trotz, you know, finally got the Capitals over the Schneid, but that a lot of things had to happen for that to happen. So I don't think it's the coach's fault. I do agree, you know, a change in the room is a good thing in certain cases, but I think in this case, uh, to me, it wasn't a change in the room that needed to happen. That's just my opinion right now. We'll see how it I plays out, but it it's a change in the roster that needs to happen, like a complete top-to-bottom rebuild. And I don't think – I think – uh, this will be a little brash or a little cocky from a Red Wings perspective, but I think that because they had 
their great success from a more limited period of time, they don't know how to handle the downside. And, you know, we don't either. We didn't either. So it took us like three years to accept that we were failing and start actually failing. And if they can embrace it sooner, it'll be better for both the team and the fan base. Um, but let's let's wrap this up by checking in on, you know, what it's like, what what's going on in the world of the Maple Leafs from a fan's perspective and, you know, how you feel uh, going into coming into November where you start getting, you know, as we like to say, stashing those points away, you know, getting those turkey day points, you know. How do you feel about this roster construction, given that we already addressed the Nylander situation? I I think right now, I'm I'm just I'm doing okay. I think at home they need to be better. Right now they're 500 at home, but if anything, they've only lost one game on the road. <laughs> like, and it's gonna be you know Thanksgiving in a week and a half ish, and they've lost one game on the road. One. What does that do to your ego? So. Like for me, I just, that's what I'm saying. Like at home, we're kind of a mess, but we've had a lot of tough games to start the season. We've played a lot of good teams so far and, and we've, you know, we've dominated a few teams. Like we just beat Pittsburgh five to nothing the other night. So, I mean, like we're, I think we're playing good hockey against good teams, but some of the other games we're kind of phoning in a little bit. And also we haven't had an awesome Matthews the last two weeks and we're still doing really well. That bodes confidence for me personally speaking. I mean, Austin Matthews is my guy on that team. That's the guy that I, I think like you're modeling the team around outside of Jonathan or Jonathan Tavares. I said Jonathan Taves. It but, happens. Um, <laughs> too many Johns in hockey that are similar. Jonathan Quick. <laughs> yeah, but um, for me personally, it's just nice. Like I, I kind of alluded to it last time we talked about it. Like I see that they played. If they lose, I'm like okay, but that doesn't happen very often right now, and I'm just riding that wave of they're playing pretty well. They're second place in the division right now. I misspoke on that. They're down three points to Tampa, which Tampa's a good team. They are twelve and four and one. They are Tampa's still loaded. They made no changes basically. And they did really well last year. So I expect them to be a good team. So and then Montreal is in third place in the division, which is still a shock to me. And that's one of our losses. <laughs> so I don't know. So is Ottawa. Yeah, right. <laughs> I had to. I'm sorry. I literally had we just, to. We just won't talk about that. That was the first right. game right. of the season. All right. We'll that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, anything else you want to add to this show before we wrap anything up? No, we covered a lot, yeah. man. I think we, we did, did a 55 minute show. <laughs> Oops. And it doesn't feel like 55 minutes. No, it does minutes, not. I'm sure. sitting here trying to think, like, did we cover everything? I think we did. Uh, and we skipped a topic. Yeah, and we skipped a fucking topic. Uh, anyways, all right. Uh, if you like the show, I ask, as always, to subscribe to us on iTunes. We are listed under SRD Hockey. Uh, if you find that and you like what we do, please share it with your friends. Uh, if you're not into iTunes, you can check us out on TuneIn Radio, Podbean, Stitcher, Facebook. And now, again, because we hit over five episodes, we're on Spotify. You can listen to us in your car, man. You can listen to us everywhere. You can follow the brand on Twitter at Sports Radio DET. Our sister show at STW underscore SRD. You can follow me on Twitter at JM Pinkham. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Franchise GFX. Check out our website at sportsradiodetroit.com. Thank you, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. This has been an SRD production.